Thank you all for being here. Welcome. First, before we get started, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the things that you're interested in learning in this session? There's no expectations, and I can't lose, right? <laughs> Seriously, what intrigued you about the multi-ethnic Christian life? And what would you like to learn from this session? Go ahead. Yes. Okay, so you've got multi-ethnic emerging in your area. Great. That's sick. Go ahead. This probably might be a bit pushing beyond what we're going to do today. That's okay. But I want to know why, um, as someone who lives in the city where the TMRA has been shot and killed, okay. why my church wouldn't talk about it. I don't know if that fits at all. Whew. That's <laughs> yes. part of what I'm interested in. And that is, a, that is not necessarily a part, we'll try to touch on that in this session, and then I have another session afterwards that that would actually be perfect, um, that goes along with exactly what I'm talking about, so. Yes. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up, yes. All right, anybody else? We also are in the Cincinnati area. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. You know? Yes, that does happen. So just educating other people within the church, mm-hmm. included, on some things about these other cultures and how to relate to them even outside the church. Absolutely. Okay. The- Great. We'll touch on some next steps towards the end here. What church are you from? Montgomery Assembly. Okay. Great. Our neighbors, our friends. Yep. <laughs> Good. Good. Anybody else? All right. Well, as Kelly mentioned, my name is Onia Fennell Okwabi, and I am the Director of Cultural Inclusion at People's Church. Um, People's Church is in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we've been on quite a journey over the past 17 years or so. Basically, People's Church uh, decided to stay in the heart of the city when a lot of churches moved to the suburbs. Uh, but it really didn't make a difference in the composition of the church because the church was 98% white, People who would come from the suburbs into the city to go to the church and they would leave without making any impact on the city. Our lead pastor, Chris Beard, um, back then about 17, 15 to 17 years ago, had this vision that churches are supposed to be every tribe, every tongue, every nation, worshiping God together. And so he began intentionally building friendships, building relationships with African American pastors in the city. One day, one of those pastors was ready to step down from senior pastoring for a while, and he became our first associate pastor of color. New families began trickling in, and as we intentionally took steps to learn about each other, to incorporate all cultures into our service, um, we wake up today, and our church is 50% white, 25% African American, and 25% international from over 30 nations. And we give God all the glory for that. So today, as we start talking about the multi-ethnic Christian life and why it's so important, I want to do just that. I want to lay down a a foundation for why the multi-ethnic Christian life. And so that's going to be the majority of this session, even though we will at the end talk about some practical tips on how to move forward in doing the multi-ethnic Christian life. 
Um, I have a session right after this in the same bat location. And the topic of that is making the mix work. So this is about why should you have a mix. The second session is about once you have that mix, how do you make sure everybody is included and everybody is working together um, and that you're talking about the important issues that are going on in your church. So I will start um, with a, a provocative statement. There is no biblical mandate for the homogeneous church. None. Now, before we get confused about that, a mandate is just an official order or commission to do something. So if you can tell me anywhere in scripture where Jesus says, go plant all white churches, go plant all black churches, go plant all Korean churches, let's talk about that. I'll wait. Anybody? Any, any place? No? Not so much? Okay. All right. So we're all on the same page. That's great. But when we ask people, you know, for example, church planners, they're planning a church, we ask, well, who's your target audience? The way that we think about that is not even a biblical question at this point. And if we have no mandate to plant the homogeneous church, then why do we look up and see that this is the current state of the church? This church is shockingly segregated by race and ethnicity. Um, today, 86% of churches are comprised of one racial or ethnic group. Now, that, that doesn't mean there won't be a few sprinkles in there, um, but when I say comprised of one racial or ethnic group, that means 80% of the church or more is made up of one ethnic group. Because if you don't have more than 20% diversity, you don't really have diversity, you have tokens. Um, it's at that 20% mark, sociologically, that people are able to um, make an impact and make a difference in the way the church is run. Um, before that, it's, it's really hard to have anything except a little, um, like I said, token diversity. People will often say that my church is not diverse because of the neighborhood I'm in or the locale that, that I sit in. And so that's why. It's not because we're not welcoming others. Um, but then we look at and we see that our churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they sit in and 20 times more segregated than the schools that surround them. Our churches today are probably the most segregated institution of American life. And that's not how it was intended to be. So the question is why? How do you think we got this way? I'm going to throw it out to you guys. What do you think? Comfortability. Right. Yeah, we want to stay in our comfort zone. We want to be around people who are like us. Yeah, that's good. What else? Go ahead. Language, yeah. Language is a big one. If I can't understand you, then it's kind of hard to do church with you. Absolutely. Good. Why else? History would be an obvious one. I think yes. that it's been so long that there's been a real invitation for it. And even when there is an invitation, that it can be a second-class industry or a citizenry or a token kind of thing Yes. That mandate of saying, like, hey, let's work together, and, and, and it was 
it was such a hard road because mm -hmm. it was like still even the 80s was like what are you trying to do like, yeah you know, this is all PC this is not really the gospel and even though the church is like it was it was a really tough road and, and ultimately it didn't really work out Right. You, you do hear that a lot. Um, you know, when I'm, I'm speaking about these things of doing multi-ethnic church, oftentimes people want to say, well, that's the PC thing to do. And, and are, are we just doing this because that's what the world is talking about, this diversity thing? And um, no, <laughs> that's not the reason why we're doing it. So you, you said a lot there. And also the, the weight of history, um, the fact that we have been separated for so long, you know, oftentimes... When I tell people that our churches are separated by race or ethnicity, they may go to a homogeneous church, but they never even thought about the fact that it was homogeneous. So that's good. Yeah. So for me, the bottom line is, and you guys said a lot of that, that the church took on its environment. Um, we, at pivotal points of history, were in a place where we could have really decided, we're going to do church, all people, and if society doesn't like it, then that's too bad. We kind of missed the opportunity to be countercultural and to, to swim against the grain. That was two metaphors, but you understand what I'm saying. Um, we missed that opportunity. And so now when we're coming back around to multi-ethnic and people are saying, well, that seems PC, well, that's because we missed the opportunity to lead in this area. We could have been the first ones to present an institution that was integrated across every division of human origin. We missed that opportunity, but we can't miss it again. So today, as I mentioned, I want to just go back straight to scripture. And even if you're already um, convinced about doing multi-ethnic church, which it seems like some of you in this room are, which is fantastic, I want to provide you some of the biblical basis for why it is so important to do churches of every nation. So that when people come to you and say, why are you talking about this politically correct thing? Or why are you trying to do this? You can say, because it's God's word. That's why I want to do it. So this will give you a basis um, to understand why multi-ethnic churches are the biblical model. And we see in scripture that Jesus envisioned the multi-ethnic church as he looked forward, that Luke described the multi-ethnic church in the book of Acts, and that Paul prescribed the multi-ethnic church. And I'll talk a little bit about Ephesians, but really, all throughout his epistles, he prescribed the multi-ethnic church. Before we read the scriptures, I just want to take a moment to pray. God, I thank you so much for this, this room and for these people who are gathered here to, to learn more about what your model is for doing church. I pray that you would give us courage to have the hard conversations that need to happen when we are uh, breaking a model that has been around for so long. I pray that you would give us wisdom and we pray that you would give us your love and your heart for each individual. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus envisioned the multi-ethnic church. I want to go to a, a familiar story from the book of John. It's in John 12, um, 21 to 32. Actually, I'm going to start with verse 20 there. But I just want to read it to you because I was reading this story recently, a couple of weeks ago, and I just I saw it through new eyes, and I really thought, wow. This is one of those places where Jesus is really seeing what he wants his church to be. John 12, starting with verse 20. 
Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Now Jesus gives kind of a strange reply. He's not like, all right, bring him in. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in the world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And skipping down to verse 32. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. These Greeks that came to Philip and in turn wanting to come to Jesus, they were people who were on the outside looking in on the faith. They would have been interested in worshiping the true God, but they couldn't because their culture separated them. They could have become proselytites, but they would have had to give up everything that they knew in their life, their, their friends, their family, the way that they did things to be able to come and worship God. And so they're at the temple. They want to worship God, but they're on the outside looking in. And they see something that they've never seen before. They see Jesus. And they've heard his reputation, and they've heard the miracles that he's doing. And they say to themselves, maybe this can be our way in. Maybe this can be different. Maybe we can actually worship God too. And so they come and say, sir, we would see Jesus. And when Jesus receives this message, he says, oh, this is part of the reason I must die. That's why his response goes straight to his crucifixion. It's because, yes, I want them to see me too. But the way things are set up right now, they can't. But I am dying to remove the veil, to remove every barrier that humans have put up so that all people can be drawn to me. And you know, I've studied a lot of Greek and Hebrew over the years, and when the Bible says all, do you know what it really means? All. <laughs> and so that's why Jesus' response was this. He is envisioning the kind of church that he is going to be able to build, that is going to be able to be built by his crucifixion and his resurrection. There will be a new time when all people will be able to be joined and, and brought to God. And so when we see this in the scripture and we start to think about it and we start to apply it to the multi-ethnic church, you know, some people might go, is that a bit of a stretch? I mean, you're talking about Jews and Greeks here. It was a different system. After all, if I don't have any black people at my church or I don't have any white people at my church, it's not like they don't have a church. They just go to a different church. Well, I'll tell you a story of something that happened in my life, which makes me believe that it's important that every person can be comfortable in every church. And it was when I was in high school. 
I went to a fantastic high school. We had all different kinds of people, all different kinds of culture. It was great. Um, and my junior year, somebody decided, let's have a Christian club. And I was excited because I, I went to church my whole life. I didn't have a saving relationship with Christ yet, but I liked church. It was fun. And so I said, let me join this Christian club. And so I brought some of my crew. We came. We were there to see and worship and get to know people. And the strangest thing happened when I got to this club. They all seemed to kind of know what was going on. They started singing, Our God is an Awesome God. They knew all the words to the song. They had, you know, they started talking about watching Veggie Tales when they were growing up. They all had these things in common. They had a common culture. And I and my friends were sitting there like, we have no idea what you people are talking about. Um, and we did not, had never heard our God is an awesome God before. Um, so, you know, yes, you could say, well, you could have just started your own Christian club that was full of the culture that you got from your church. But that wasn't the way. The way would have been if we were able to come in there and feel comfortable. And we weren't. Because we didn't know the songs, we didn't know the rituals, people assumed we knew things that we didn't know, even though we'd been to church our whole lives. And basically we walked out of that club and never came back. It was another eight years before I came to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I just think back, and again, nothing wrong with them. I mean, they were students. They were doing the best they could. They wanted to have a place where people could meet Jesus at, their, at our school. But what they didn't realize was, they only made a place for one kind of people to meet Jesus. They didn't make a place where everybody could come and meet Jesus. And that's what was missing. And so we say, when we say, sir, we would see Jesus, and we say we want everybody to be able to see Jesus in our context, it's not okay to just say, well, they could go down the street and see Jesus in a different cultural way because they might not ever go down the street. They're here now. And we don't want to turn them away without being able to communicate what the gospel really is. The second place that Jesus envisioned the multi-ethnic church is in John 17, um, 20 through 23. This is one part of his final prayer as he was preparing to go to the cross um, that his disciples would have heard. And it says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And we teach a class on um, multi-ethnic church um, with our 8th graders. My husband and I used to lead youth ministry at our church. And invariably, every time we would teach the scripture, we would go through it, we'd read over it, and then we would turn to the students and say, now how will people believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And they would turn back to us and say, oh, well, by our good works. How will people believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Oh, by the message that we preach. How will people believe? That's not what the scripture says. And it wasn't just because they were 13 and they weren't paying attention. It's because we don't usually talk about things this way, um, that it was so hard for them to grasp because maybe they had never heard it in quite that way. That if we are united, if we are one, then the world will know that Jesus is who he says he is. And when we are sitting at a place where we are the most segregated institution of, human, of American life, we're painting the opposite of that picture instead of painting what Jesus wanted us to paint when he envisioned the multi-ethnic church. 
The third place that Jesus really envisioned the multi-ethnic church was with the, the Great Commission. Um, so I think there's a not-so-great commission, um, which is go and make disciples of people just like you. Um, I don't remember reading that in the scripture. It's just not in there. The Great Commission is therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, the Assemblies of God is like one of the greatest mission-sending organizations that ever existed on the face of the earth. And so we, more than everybody, have a mandate to get this right. Not only when we send missionaries overseas and we support them and we love them and we do that, but we also do it in our everyday life. Um, again, with our youth ministry, one of the, the best uh, series that I think my husband ever did was a series called um, Emerge. And basically, we were telling our students, don't be the weird kid who reads your Bible in the corner. Yes, read your Bible. Were some of you guys that kid? I'm sorry if I offended you. (laughs) Sorry. Um, Yes, read your Bible. And yes, be a Christ follower at at, at church and at school and everywhere you go. Be the aroma of Christ. But make some friends. Go out and join an organization. Have people who like you enough to listen to what you have to say about Jesus. And so when we tell our students to do that, in what context are we telling them to do that? We're telling them to do that at an incredibly diverse school. And so if we're not a place where they can bring anybody to, what am I really telling them? I'm telling them, we're an all-black youth group. So when you go to school and you decide to merge with people, you talk to her. But you don't talk to her because she can't come to our youth group. She doesn't look like us. She's not going to fit in. She's not going to be comfortable there. Do I want to give my students that message or do I want to give them the message that anybody you come into contact with, you talk to them about Jesus. Anybody who you see the Holy Spirit working in their life because they're going to be able to find themselves here. And they're going to be comfortable here and we're going to make sure that they're comfortable here. And that way you can go and do the Great Commission everywhere you go because you don't have to worry about having a place to bring those students back to. You know, Dick Brogdon was talking to our our missions pastor recently and he was talking to him about the last 18 inches. The idea that, again, we're a great mission-sending organization, but you guys know the process is arduous. Uh, Basically, you get this call to missions. Then you fill out your applications. You make sure you get your finances right. Then you go out and you raise money. You hit the churches. You hit the circuit. Finally, you raise enough money to go on the field. You find an apartment. We send you off to some other country where they don't know Jesus. But after those years of work, literally years, not to mention language school, I forgot about that stuff, to get you there, there's 18 inches left. And you've got to decide, am I going to say, hi, I want to talk to you about Jesus? Probably not that way. I'm not a missionary. <laughs> but there's a way that you do it. Or are you not? And do we have opportunities for our missionaries and our ordinary people to be doing that in their everyday life? Or do we tell them that by the way our churches look, the people that you're supposed to reach out to in your everyday life are the people who look like you? So Jesus envisioned the multi-ethnic church. Any questions on that so far before I keep going? Good? Clear? Yeah, absolutely. It was John 12. 
And I'll upload these slides to um, Sketch after the, the session. So if there's anything that you missed, you'll be able to get it. Okay? Then Luke described the multi-ethnic church. Now, you know, we're good Pentecostals here. So our favorite chapter of Acts is chapter 2. That's right. <laughs> the day of Pentecost, the mighty rushing wind, the tongues. We love that. But I hate to tell you, people who want to restore an Acts chapter 2 church are restoring the wrong church. The Acts chapter 2 church had a lot. They had the spirit. They had the fire. They had tremendous growth. But what they had was one kind of people. Jesus said to go, but they stayed. Why did they stay? They were comfortable. And so it took tremendous persecution that was brought to get them to disperse from Jerusalem. As much as I like that Acts chapter 2 church and would like some elements of that, the church I'm really going for is the Acts chapter 13 church. Why is that? Well, 13.1 says it all. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manahin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So here at this church in Acts chapter 13, we finally start to see that church that Jesus envisioned. That church of all people. We have a sub-Saharan African. We have a North African. We have the rich kid who grew up with the king's son. We have a couple of Jewish scholars. We don't have any women in this picture, but there's lots of other women in the New Testament, so don't think I'm leaving out women. We believe in gender equity as well. But this church cared about all people because they were made up of all people. And so this church was the mission-sending church. This is the church that was sending out people to tell others about the gospel because they weren't comfortable where they were. They knew that they had this variety of people and they wanted every people group that they were touching to have a full witness of the gospel. And so they became the mission-sending church. That's the church that we want to look like, the church of all people to all people. And the other thing that you find out is in Acts 13, this church at Antioch, this is the first place that they were called Christians. You see, they couldn't just call them Jewish believers anymore. They couldn't just call them this or that because they were a new mix. And the only thing that would describe them was they follow Christ. They needed a new word to, to describe them. They literally changed the conversation. And when I look at the way that Christians are described in the news media today, that's a conversation that we need to change again. Because I have never heard somebody talk about Christians of all stripes at once. You hear people talk about white evangelicals and the evangelical vote. You hear them talk about black church pastors when, when something go, happens in the black community. You don't hear about this united church that has a united voice. You hear about us being separated by race. That's the way that we're talked about. Just like the church at Antioch, we need to start to change the conversation about who we are and what we're here to do. And then finally, Paul prescribed the multi-ethnic church. Now, there's a picture of our kids' um, human video. You know, anything that you need to communicate in life can basically be communicated via human video. 
I carry extra t-shirts just in case I need to break into one. <laughs> but our human video this year was One New Humanity. And that comes straight from the book of Ephesians in uh, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace, talking about Jesus, who made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new man, thus making peace. Jesus destroyed it all. As we talked about earlier, these, these barriers that we decide to put up and we, we decide to erect, Jesus came to destroy them all in his flesh. And so now we are to act and behave as one new humanity. You see that all throughout the book of Ephesians. And I could go on with the way, ways and places that Paul prescribed the multi-ethnic churches. You can see it anywhere you look, as long as I encourage you, actually. Go back. Start with your, you know, even the Gospels. And if you're looking for multi-ethnic, you'll find it everywhere, how God wants to bring people together. Um, another place, the famous scripture in, in Galatians 3.28. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no male or female. Um, the whole book of Romans. What people don't understand about the structure of the book of Romans is that it wasn't just arbitrary, the way Paul wrote the book of Romans. Chapter 1 was all about the things the Greeks were doing wrong and why we don't like going to church with these Greek people because they don't know our traditions. But then chapter 2 was all about the things the Jewish people were doing wrong. And it's like, well, you guys are complaining about the Greeks, but you are no better. And the idea is, in chapter 3, we've all fallen short. We're all in need of the grace of God us together as a community. So let's stop fighting about the Greeks and the Jews or the conservatives and the liberals or the blacks and the whites. Let's stop fighting about all that and let's come to the throne of grace together. And then finally, in Revelations, both in 5.9 and 7.9, we see this amazing picture of people worshiping before the throne, every tribe and tongue and nation. And so the idea is, if we want God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, <laughs> oh, my daughter is cute. That's, that's all I can say about that. And um, if we want that to happen, then why are we content waiting for heaven for that to happen? If we can see every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping before the throne of God, don't we want that right now? There's no other part of heaven I want to wait for. I want as much of the Holy Spirit. I want as much of God's presence. I want as much of all of it as I can get right now. And that includes worshiping every tribe, tongue, and nation together. And so we see it all throughout Scripture that the idea is it's time. It's time to be the multi-ethnic church. Beyond the biblical reasons, there are practical reasons that you can see in your communities. As you mentioned earlier, the complexion of America is changing. There's hardly any place that you can go anymore and just see one kind of people. And the more that we insist on doing church that way, we're going to be weird. I mean, people are, I've heard, people are going to think we're cults. It's like, why are you only hang out with white people? That's weird. You should stop doing that. Um, and so we want to be able to reflect what America looks like. The other reason we talked about also is that if you're in diverse environments, you don't want to go up to your friend and be like, I'd love to bring you to church with me, but let me find another church where we can both go to because you can't come to my church. How terrible would that be? 
we are probably only 20 years removed from a time when if you were the wrong race and you showed up in a church, they'd hand you a card and be like, there's a church up the street where you might want to go. We're not going to be that anymore, are we? And the second reason is that the church is growing where the population is shrinking. Um, when we looked at statistics of where the church is, is growing, uh, as it turns out, it tends to be growing in affluent, majority uh, white areas. Those are the areas that are shrinking. The, the population is going down, but that's where churches are being planted. That's where church attendance is going up. So we're ignoring minority communities. We're ignoring the poor. We're ignoring the places maybe where it's harder to get a good offering because we want to plant successful churches. And so that's a losing strategy. When you're trying to talk about the idea is always reaching people for the gospel. If we're reaching people in the areas that are going down in population, we're going to keep seeing our church attendance numbers slide. So it's time to do something different. So how do we get started? And this starts to be some of the practical pieces. And we will leave time for more questions on practical pieces, so don't worry about um, running out uh, on that. But the first thing you do is you live a multi-ethnic life. Um, when I talked about our pastor, Chris Beard, earlier, the first thing he did when he wanted to, to start um, diversifying the church was he didn't run out and try to get a bunch of people to come to the church. He ran out and got a bunch of new friends. He started actually hanging out and doing life with diverse people. Because if you're trying to lead a church that's diverse, but all of your friends all look like you, your life experiences, you're not going to be able to speak into those people's lives. You're not going to be authentic. When people see you, they're going to be like, you just want me to come to your church so that your church is, is not so, you know, just all black people. That's why you want me to come. You don't care about me. But when they see your friendships, when they see that you understand or, and know about other cultures, when they see it's authentic in your life, that you're a person of character with this, that's when it begins to change your church, and that's when it begins to change your community. The second thing you can do is start the conversation. Um, we at our church got to about 2005, 2006, and we realized that we had you know, all these people who were starting to come to worship together. But we were not talking about the deep things. You're not going to walk up to somebody of a different race or ethnicity and bring up the latest controversy or the latest thing that's going on in your life that's race-related. Because it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. You don't know how they're going to respond. So we need to, if you have friendships, it becomes a little bit easier because you can actually talk to your friends about these things and it's not weird. But on a broader basis, having tools that allow you to start the conversation are important. Um, we have a small group curriculum that you can uh, look into. I brought a couple of copies that you can look through. But it's an eight-week small group session. It's a way to have conversations about race, about ethnicity, about even socioeconomic differences that um, allows you to have a conversation. But whether you use this tool or not, the idea is have something that you can use to start the conversation, that when you're bringing different groups of people together, that they have a way to make their voices heard, and they don't just have unintended hurts sitting and festering on the inside. The third thing that you want to do is to start with leadership. So when you want to have a um, more multi-ethnic church, you can't just bring people into the congregation 
They need to be able to see themselves in leadership. They need to be able to know that I have a future at this church. You know, the first multi-ethnic church that I went to was not um, People's Church, where I go now. It was our church in New Orleans. And our church in New Orleans was amazing. And that's where I met the Lord. And it was, it was everything that I needed at that moment. Because it was what I needed at that moment, what I didn't realize was that all of the leadership was white. And the only thing that people of color did at that church was outreach. Reach out to the poor. Reach out to the homeless. That's what you do. So unintentionally, it was sending a message that you're welcome to worship here. But when it comes to preaching, when it comes to leadership, that's reserved for our white members. And so if you don't diversify your leadership and begin there, when people walk in, eventually they'll figure, huh, there's only so much of a place for me here. And it's going to be hard for them to stick in, especially when you're bringing in leaders who have any sort of ministry gifts. You need to create an environment where they can see themselves where you are or even higher. And so starting with leadership so that people are seeing themselves as they walk in the door. Four, be prepared to get out of your comfort zone. We have a uh, rule at our church that's called the Rule of 70. And that basically means that you should like about 70% of what goes on in any one service. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that sounds funny when you're, you know, when you're used to, I, I want to like all of what goes on in my service. But the idea is you'll like 70% of it. The 30% that you're not so keen on, it's probably not for you. It's so that somebody else can feel comfortable worshiping here. It's so somebody else can enter into worship here. Um, and we're willing to make those sacrifices because we're not here in church about ourselves. We're here in church about each other and about reaching the lost. And so if I have to give up 30% of my preferences on a Sunday morning to make that happen, yeah, that's something I'm willing to do. And then finally, be intentional. Um, the idea being that it's well and good to say, and a lot of, I doubt you would he- actually have any pastor you would go up to and say, how do you feel about diversity? And they would turn to you and say, I hate that. Don't bring that stuff in here. No, what they're going to say is, yeah, that sounds good. I like that. I like that idea. Um, but will they do anything to make sure that that happens? We've had to make a lot of changes over the years, from changing our musical style to changing you know, our, the way our staff looks to changing the way that we do some of our messages. We've changed a lot of things. But again, it was in the effort of intentionality. We couldn't just stay the way that we were and expect to overnight go from having an all-white congregation to a mixed congregation. We had to make some changes so that people who were coming in felt comfortable. And they called their friends and said, hey, we can, we can go to this church. They're pretty cool there. They, they like us there. It works out. So being intentional would be the last step. And we'll talk, if you come to the next session, that is something that we will talk more about. But we can also talk, take some questions here, too. So I guess what I would finish with is this. And I've been thinking a lot about this. You know, this is William Seymour, um, the great man who led the Azusa Street Revival. And Azusa Street is where our denomination was born, and it was a time of outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a time when um, renewal and the idea that we should live by the Spirit came back to the church again. 
But even with all of the great things that came out of Azusa Street, William Seymour died disillusioned. He died disillusioned, the pastor of a small, all-black church. And what he said was, we, we must have not got it. Because if people can still be racist, they must not have the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm not calling, calling any names. That's what he said. But this is what he saw. And so when I look at that, and I look at the sad way in which his life ended, I say, I don't think bringing back the, the gifts and the activity of the Holy Spirit into the life of the church was the only thing that God wanted to do in that revival. I believe with all of my heart that God wanted the color line permanently washed away in the blood during that revival. But that our hearts were too hard and we weren't ready for that. And so God has let several generations go by. We're at a point in history now where, yes, 86% of our churches are segregated. But 15 years ago, it was 93%. So we're making exponential progress. And I feel like God is saying that this is a move of his spirit in this generation, that he wants to break these things for once and for all. And the question is, are we going to be willing to sacrifice and to let him do that? Or are we going to have to go another several generations before we can all be united as the multi-ethnic church? Thank you. Okay. So let me make sure we address the things that we talked about up front. So if we have emerging multi-ethnic, that was your situation. So how is it like all sorts of people are moving in? Is it like one particular people group that's really starting to come into your... Yes. Everybody that I grew up with. for lunch. Do say, you know, hey, we, we know we're not diverse yet, 
this is something we care about. It's important to us. Um, we hope you'll stick around and help us do that. You know, and that's that's worth doing, for sure. Thank you. Um, church ethnic training. Okay, remind me what that was. Well, that was being more sensitive and aware. Was that the same? Kind of combined. It's kind of combined. Kind of touching on two different okay. points of the how-to, which I think you alluded to a separate session, but just being yeah, okay. sensitive. Okay. Perfect. And that's, that's a great question because we do, we have these unintentional hurts that we carry around. So that, that's part of why we do the primer um, because it helps people have an open forum where they can open up to each other. But one of the other things that is important is that you are, again, developing these relationships across all groups. Because if you're in relationship with somebody and you say something or you post something on your Facebook page that they're just like, I don't know if you really thought about how that sounds, they're going to come to you and tell you. They're going to talk to you in love and in compassion, and you're not going to, um, when, you, when you have a friend, you don't, offend them like that and they're gone and they're done with you. That's what friendship is about. We offend each other. We do those things and we get through it and we work together. And so that's just why it's so important that you're continuing to build these relationships and it kind of, it starts with us and it kind of goes out for to our other leaders and the other people we're in contact with when we want to be more sensitive and aware. The other thing I would, I would suggest that you do is surround yourself with different kinds of media. We are so focused nowadays that, you know, if we, if we're Fox News watchers, and that's what we watch, morning, noon, and night, it's Fox News and it's on, then when somebody is talking about something, we're like, well, that's not how they talk about it on Fox News. You must be wrong. And if we don't get more than one side of the story, then we're liable to offend other people because we don't realize that there is more than one side of the story. So I encourage you, you know, if you're a Fox News person, watch MSNBC for a day. It's going to make you mad, but hopefully it'll make you think. <laughs> hopefully it'll make you think like, okay, these people aren't completely crazy. Why are they saying these things? If you want to get really wild, you know, there's a website called um, theroot.com where you can learn about what news is going on in the black community. Um, learn what conversations are going on there or see what's trending on Twitter. Um, I guarantee it will be eye-opening for you. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yes. Google Translate is like a gift. You can translate anything in 2.2 seconds. It's good. Uh, question here? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
but it does help build relationships. Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely. Great. More questions. Go ahead. So this is probably a little kind of too big to tackle in one go, but I'm just trying to wrap my head around, like, how, does this, how do we make this happen? Sure. Um, and kind of the situation in the church uh, that I'm in, I think if we've got more diversity in our church than a lot of the churches around us. Okay. We love that. We're excited about yes. that. Yes. But I feel like there's just kind of a, a culture still there. You see it, I mean, especially on Facebook. Facebook gets ugly. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff, and I, knowing the people who it's coming from, it's not, I, I think it's just not thought through. Not mm-hmm. necessarily. Mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. A lot of mm-hmm. it's like, hey, all lives matter. Blue lives matter, you know. Mm-hmm. Right? Kind mm-hmm. of stuff out there. A mm-hmm. lot of, that, like, I get where you're coming from, but, like, mm-hmm. it's not, not going to help you know, as achieve our goal. And so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm noticing that, like, yeah, we're bringing in, you know, folks from, from different racial backgrounds. Mm-hmm. But even those people are, like, the people mm-hmm. who watch the same news station mm-hmm. as people in our church. And, and so it's like, we're happy, like, oh, look at us. We're, we're like, moving right towards that multi-ethnic church. Mm-hmm. on the back. We're awesome. Yes. But, but I feel like we probably have hit our ceiling unless we, we get into a more cultural change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, even just in being able to, to, to talk about those things and yes. hear the other side. So I, I know that's like a lot mm-hmm. right there, but like how do I from a deacon level yes. in the church mm-hmm. start to change the culture? Is it I go up to these people, I comment on their Facebook pages like, hey, what the heck? Or because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to go after things that are problematic, but not necessarily sin when there's sin going on that needs addressed first. Mm. Uh, like they're they're at their their viewpoints on these topics aren't sinful, mm-hmm. but they're unproductive, and they can lead to division, if that makes sense. Like, it's not wrong mm-hmm. for them to mm-hmm. think that way, but it's wrong for them to, to not listen to other. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot going on. Yeah, no, no. That's, that's super, you know, super good question. And what I would say is, is your pastor on board with the things that, with becoming more multi-ethnic, is that something that's close to his or her heart? Yes, but I think he... He's on, he's on board, uh, I think. Okay. We're recording these sessions. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I think with, with him, I think he's happy with the progress we've made. made. Not necessarily satisfied, but like yeah. satisfied enough that it's not uh, a pressing issue for him okay. at the moment. Like, hey, we're doing pretty good mm-hmm. versus... And, and so, but we're not doing good in this, this, and this, this. So we're going to focus on these yeah. things. So I think he has a heart for it, but it's not. I feel like a lot of times he feels like he's putting out fires, and that's not a. It feels like he's got that one under control, and he's dealing with other things at this time. Okay. Yeah, that makes that makes a big difference um, because there's always another step. 
in this process of becoming multi-ethnic. Even once you have the representation, there's a step of going deeper. Even once you have gone deeper, there's a step of making an impact on your community and, and leveling hierarchies that are out there of injustice. There's always another step. And unless your leader is pushing and saying, let's take the next hill, it's going to be really tough to do. Um, but what you can do from your um, position as a deacon, and that is a great position of leadership, continue to push your pastor. Continue to say, this is the reasons why, why this is important, and more importantly, this is the reasons why it's biblical. That until we are a, a church where you know, there really is this um, openness to people of every culture, we're going to be missing parts of our community that could be coming to Christ through us. And then, yes, do have conversations in person with people about what's on their Facebook pages. Um, I, I honestly prefer that people teach on it from the pulpit. We teach on tough issues from our pulpit a lot. Um, but we never do it from a cultural point of view and say, this is not helping us culturally. We go straight back to the scripture and say, this is what the word says about immigrants, or this is what the word says about, you know, making sure the, the parts of the body that have not been preferred in the, the past are given more dignity, or this is what the scripture says about all people being created equally, and therefore we need to make changes to make sure that all people are treated differently. That's not the same thing as saying that all lives matter. Um, so all of those things are things that are biblical and that you can teach on from the scriptures. And I am not saying that the people in your church who hold conservative points of view are, are in sin, just like you said. But what I'm saying is sometimes those things come from a root of sin that we don't realize is there. And so I would confront them just like I would confront anything else and try to understand what's there. Um, and you're in a great position to be able to do that. Yes? So I think a couple of things that she won't mention it, but uh, for me, it's just workshops. I think there's a lot, as you go on this journey, whatever church you go to, there's a lot of steps. Uh, we've been on this journey for 12 years, and we love to say two things. You don't want to cause disunity and for the sake of unity, you know? And so um, just want to, there's going to be a lot of questions that might arise, so I just take note of her email address. You can connect with her, and there's so many levels of this. Yeah, good. I, I do want to get back to what you said about um, earlier about Tamir Rice and why, you know, you're in Cleveland and this happened and nobody at your church talked about it. Real quickly. Yeah, go say, ahead. Like, we, our church is at probably that 20% okay. um, uh, threshold of having African-American um, participation members. We have two, we're a smaller church, but we have two okay. African-American um, leaders, okay. one female, one male. Great. So I think we're at a point where Structurally, that's happening, and that's mm -hmm. really good. Mm -hmm. uh, it would, it's kind of similar to what the gentleman was sharing, is that there is under the surface, though, mm -hmm. to really push to that next place. Yeah. You know, I don't know if there's a, how, how, how aware and ready we are for that. So that's why I bring up the Tamir Rice thing. Mm -hmm. It was a real struggle for me because I would hear, let's pray for peace. Mm -hmm. What bothers me is that in, uh, we definitely want to pray for a peaceful protest. Yes. But, you know, but inherently in that when white people pray for peace is that they, they do not see police officers killing kids as, as violence. You know what I'm saying? So they're praying for peace. Yeah, but our, our police department, which is one of the worst in the country, mm -hmm. is not at peace with our community. 
-hmm. And so as someone who lives in the city mm -hmm. and, and who has a different perspective than some of my friends who are in the suburbs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, when you see that, you go, wait, 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 we can't be praying for peace. And that mm -hmm. just means that people won't protest and, and get in the way of our day, our commute to work. And I think that's where I, I feel like we hit the, the wall. Mm -hmm. When mm -hmm. there's, not a there's not voices, even though there are African American leaders, there aren't necessarily mm -hmm. voices saying, like, we got to push beyond just mm -hmm. that level. So I, I, I want to, sorry, I wanted to contextualize it for you. No, so that's, that's really good. And, and everything that you said was really good. So I appreciate that. Um, it sounds like you guys need places to have conversations um, and not conversations that a lot of times we have, and I've seen a lot of churches that have these racial conversations and they allow people to opt into them. And basically the people who opt in are the people who would be having these conversations anyway. And the people who need to hear a different perspective say, that's not for me. I don't need to be a part of that. So I suggest, um, you know, and again, depending on, on where the pastor is, Bring these conversations in the Sunday morning um, because the people in your church are hurting and they're coming to the church and they're being more hurt because other people don't understand what they're going through. I also say another th important thing to do is when you're talking about these things, laddering them up so that, you know, talking about any one incident, you can always find something the other person did wrong. But talking about the fact that, you know, black males are 21 times more likely to be shot by the police than white males. Well, that's something we can talk about because you don't incident by incident your way into 21 times more likely. There's something systemic going on. And even if we can't agree on any one particular incident, we don't need to. Let's pray about this overall issue and let's work together on how do we solve that. So that is my time. Um, thank you very much. There's more of this coming in the next session if you want to stick around. If not, God bless you. Thank you for coming. <laughs>